for centuries. They have been trying to keep us where they want us. Why do demons disappear when you die? And yet humans leave these nasty skeletons behind. We need our children back. Welcome to The Authority, Slate's His Dark Materials podcast. It's season one, episode eight, the season finale, Betrayal. We're Slate's resident scholars of experimental theology. I'm Dan Coyce, and my demon is a prairie vole named Gilda. I'm Laura Miller, and my demon is a sea otter named Saki. So, in Episode 8, Betrayal, Azrael has a late-night conversation with Lyra about dust and fatherhood, then steals away with Roger. Up on a high mountaintop, he cuts away Roger's demon and uses the energy that produces to open a doorway to another world, the city in the sky. A very, very rude thing for a dad to do with his daughter's best friend, in my opinion. Meanwhile, Mrs. Coulter claims she finally wants to be Lyra's mother, but that doesn't stop her from shooting at Lyra's other best friend, Yorick, from a blimp. Also rude behavior for a parent. You know what? Philip Larkin said it. The Fresh Prince said it. Props to Roger for saying it straight out. You know what I think? Parents are more trouble than the worse. This season finale covers the last 30 pages of The Golden Compass. The crucial, enormous twist and turning point of this story, the ascendance to the mountaintop, the betrayal and sacrifice of Roger, is the climax of everything that we've been leading up to. And it's a part of the story that crazily was left out of the 2007 film of The Golden Compass, that original failed film directed by Chris Weitz in 2007. That movie ended before we even got to Lord Asriel's hideout. So this week, as we talk about how this first season of the TV show His Dark Materials worked, we're also going to take a deep dive into that failed movie, an epic disaster that flopped so bad, we fans of the books thought we'd never see this series adapted again. Why was The Golden Compass such a failure? What went wrong? And what do the creators of this series seemingly learn from New Line's mistakes? But first, a warning. We will talk about the world of Philip Pullman's books and the television series, His Dark Materials, but we will strive not to reveal any of the details of the plot. However, if you are very spoiler sensitive, you might want to avoid this podcast or read the books. All right, so let's dive into some discussion of this episode, of episode eight. Uh, it starts out with Lyra way up north in Lord Azrael's secret experimental clubhouse. I'd like to talk a little bit about these two big conversations between them that take up much of the first half of the episode. The first one about Lyra's disappointment in Lord Azrael, that he never told her he's her father, and the second one about dust and original sin. Now, this is a very shortened version of a long crucial conversation in the book between Lyra and Asriel. And I'd like to highlight the difference between this show's Lord Asriel and Philip Pullman's Lord Asriel. The first conversation between Lyra and Asriel and the show is really quite lovely, even with the pot shot that Lyra takes at Mrs. Coulter. Let's listen to it. I'll tell you. If you tell me why you... Why you lied to me about being my father. I would have been so proud. Why would you have been proud? Because you're Lord Azrael. You're my father. Your mother, she. Do you know who your mother is? Your choice in women is almost as bad as your choice in bears. Now, you can't see James McAvoy there, but he is uh, really 
acting up a storm. We see real regret in Lord Azrael's eyes. We see grief that he couldn't, in fact, be a father to Lyra. Contrast that to how that particular moment is played in the book. I'll tell you if you tell me something, Lyra said. You're my father, ain't you? Yes. So what? So you should have told me before, that's what. You shouldn't hide things like that from people because they feel stupid when they find out, and that's cruel. What difference would it make if I knew I was your daughter? You could have said it years ago. You could have told me and asked me to keep it secret, and I would, no matter how young I was. I'd have done that if you asked me. I'd have been so proud, nothing would have torn it out of me if you asked me to keep it secret. But you never. You let other people know, but you never told me. Who did tell you? John Fa? Did he tell you about your mother? Yes. Then there's not much left for me to tell. I don't think I want to be interrogated and condemned by an insolent child. I want to hear what you've seen and done on the way here. All right, so a little bit colder of a treatment of mm-hmm. Lyra by Lord Azrael. Laura, which Lord Azrael do you like better? What is this show doing in making Lyra's parents more visibly upset at the ways that they failed her? Well, I definitely prefer this Lord Azrael. He's less like Milton's Satan. He's less this sort of grandiose, narcissistic, self-styled freedom fighter, and he's more human. Of course, we could be just seeing him through Lyra's eyes in the book, which, you know, there's all sorts of things that Lyra misses in her interactions with adults that... um that we can see in the film version. Although but, also often Philip Pullman tells us those things straight it's out, true. outside he does. of Lyra's he consciousness. Does. He's not, he's not in, into a lot of narrative tricks. The television series has a lot more time than the film. And I have to say, even than the books to really show us the vulnerability of Azrael. It's, it's not even clear in the book that he understands that what he's doing to Roger is wrong. Well, the series makes it really clear that like Mrs. Coulter, Asriel believes that the means justify the end. So that's the kind of person that both of them are. It might explain why they were drawn to each other. And because you know, we're made to feel more the cost of that, both to the people that it's done to, but also to Asriel and Mrs. Coulter themselves, I think it just reveals a lot more of what I think of as also Philip Pullman's ambivalence about the intellectual principles that Azrael represents. You know, he is the champion of free thought and of reason and of inquiry and of science, you know, and in and because Philip Pullman is sort of a famous atheist or agnostic, whatever, you, you would think he would be on that side. He would be like this Richard Dawkins kind of person. But in fact, the person who probably the most represents the most sort of Galileo-esque person in this narrative does something just horrific. And we see that like the magisterium, he is willing to sacrifice the human for abstract principles. And I think Philip Pullman does not like that no matter what those abstract principles are. I agree with you that this Lord Azrael is certainly more compelling a human character than the Lord Azrael in the book, who's sort of by design one-dimensional, whether it's seen him through Lyra's eyes or whether that's Philip Pullman's design. But it also makes me wonder, without spoiling what is to come, or it's not even spoiling, he says in this episode, I'm, you know, I'm waging war on the authority. Part of the reason that it's believable in the books that 
Lord Azrael would do this patently insane thing to wage war on God, essentially, is because he is because he shows no doubt. He is resolute. Mm. He does not show seemingly any human weakness. And that makes him seem like a foe who could credibly challenge the authority in some future war. And I'm very curious whether this more human version of Azrael can pull off the kinds of stuff that he's going to have to do in season two and season three and however long this goes, or whether that's going to end up not playing as a result of all the work that James McAvoy and the writers are putting into three-dimensionalizing this character now. Well, we do see the scene where Roger is begging him not to do this terrible thing. I mean, I don't see how you could get any worse than a child begging you not to harm him and yet going ahead with it while you're looking at that child in the face. I mean, I I think he's morally aware, but he's still enough of a fanatic that, I mean, he, he hasn't demonized everybody who he wants to use to these ends, you know, but he's still enough of a, of a fanatic that he, he, he's, he can't be stopped by even the most sort of basic appeal to someone's better instincts. Right. His response is, this is a war and there are casualties in a war. Sorry, kid. Yeah. And usually the people who say that are not looking right at the casualty as that casualty (laughs) is casualized. So, you know, I think that he's proven he's completely ruthless. He's just not oblivious to, to the fact that he's doing something wrong. So then we come to the second big conversation between Lyra and Azrael, when Azrael speaks to her about original sin. When did Eve's demon settle? When Eve ate the apple like the serpent told her to. Well done. And the serpent said, you shall not surely die, for the authority doth know that on that day that ye eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, your demons shall assume their true form, and ye shall be as gods. gods. Knowing good and, and dust. dust. Lyra remembers the word as evil, but Azrael says dust. This line is basically Genesis 3.5, the temptation of Eve. And it's only possible to be evil in the way that this story is constructed if you deliberately choose to be evil. So you must know the difference between good and evil and free and be and you must be free to make that choice. That's the whole point of free will is it you can't really also be good unless you have the freedom to not be good. So um this is also like the legal standard for sanity. You're only only people who know the difference between right and wrong can be guilty. And this is the freedom that the general oblation board and the magisterium at large, who knows if the whole magisterium, but the leadership of the magisterium is attempting to eliminate. It's the moment when the eyes are opened and you know the difference between good and evil, and that makes you like a god. So the question, though, is, is dust the equivalent of evil, in other words, the opposite of good, or is it rather what opens Adam and Eve's eyes, in other words, free will or consciousness? Now, Philip Pullman would be very, very familiar with these lines. He he might have even memorized them at some point and the other stories in the language of the King James Bible because his grandfather was a clergyman and he was a great storyteller. 
um, Pullman often says that he thinks that that's where he got his own storytelling impulse from. Like his grandfather would just walk around and point at things in the landscape and tell him and his brother all these these stories about them. And he doesn't, even though he's not a believer himself, he doesn't see any reason not to incorporate these stories or these ideas in his fiction. There's this moment where Lyra asks Azriel if the Adam and Eve story is just a fairy tale because one of the scholars at Jordan once told her that. And he says to her, think of Adam and Eve like an imaginary number, like the square root of minus one. You can never see any concrete proof that it exists. But if you include it in your equations, you can calculate all manner of things that couldn't be imagined without it, which is really funny. It's not often that stories get compared to imaginary numbers. But what he is saying that stories like the stories in the Bible are a metaphorical way of thinking that can help you get at a truth even when they're not true themselves. Your mention of this idea that it's only possible to be evil if you choose to be evil, that that evil and goodness only come from the ability to recognize and choose between them is particularly striking in light of that moment we just discussed, in light of Lord Azrael having a child beg for his life in a cage and then deliberately make the choice to kill that kid. Like that's pretty potent when you view it that when you view it in the light of the thematic associations that are running through this episode. And that's a pretty good example of a way in which this version of Lord Azrael contributes more richly to what these books are trying to illuminate than the sort of one-sided cartoonish villain who never thinks twice about the things he has to do. Yeah. I mean, it's and the Lord Azrael of the book is like your classic narcissist, you know, like everybody else is a supporting character in the heroic narrative of his life. And so, you know, of course, they can just be used up, you know, like a resource or urge to just abandon everything in their lives and come with him, you know, because what he's doing is the only thing that really matters. You know, he's very, he he is definitely a textbook case. Meanwhile, Lord Boreal finally gets his alethiometer reading from Fra Pavel in the Magisterium. Fra Pavel tells him Stanislaus Groman has discovered a knife in a tower surrounded by angels and his son will lead you to it. He does not say if it's a subtle knife, but one can only assume. Uh, And where is that son? Will, that son, Stanislaus Grumman's son, has been hiding in cafes around Oxford, our Oxford, in in order to avoid the people he thinks are looking for him. And it becomes clear to him that the cops are looking for him. And so to avoid them, he jumps into a garden. And in fact, it's Lord Boreal's garden, the place we've seen Lord Boreal come out of when he travels between worlds. Meanwhile, Mrs. Coulter is on a Zeppelin on her way to Lord Azrael's clubhouse. And we see very early in the episode this shot of her and her monkey both just like vibrating with rage and anxiety. Uh, It is really something. And it makes me want to move to the mailbag for this episode because we got a letter about this exact thing. So let's hit some listener mail. If you got questions about his dark materials or responses to the show, email us at asktheauthority at slate.com and we will answer them through email or on the show one year from now. Or find us on Twitter. We're at at Dan Coyce and at Magician's Book. Here's an email from listener Jessica. She writes, Have you noticed how amazing Ruth Wilson's physicality is? In the scene when she jumps down from the vents, and in the scene where she's beating up Benjamin, she has distinctly ape or monkey-like movements. 
I love that choice, that since demons settle into a final form that is informed by the personality of their humans, their humans are likewise influenced by the form of their demons. Uh, Jessica, I found this email fascinating. I didn't see it. Like I I don't – or rather I saw what I believe to be remarkable physicality on the part of the Ruth Wilson, but I didn't identify it as monkey-ish. But I do think in general that this scene in the Zeppelin where these two – are essentially mirroring each other is a great example of the series doing a great job of showing us how humans and demons interact and how that bond is shared. Yeah, it's I I know exactly what Jessica's talking about. There's this scene where she has Benjamin down on the floor and she's sitting on him and she's sort of pounding him with her hands and her arms are moving in this kind of sinuous way that seemed at the time, I just thought that is a really strange way to be beating, beating someone to death. Up, <laughs> yeah. It will, and especially since it's it's he's she's not a a big woman. I mean, when you see the scene, she's very confident in her domination of him. But you know, if you think about it, they should be at least equally matched. So, but there's just this kind of complete abandon to the way that she's sort of pounding him. That. Um, it sort of establishes the fact that she has, you know, that he's at the disadvantage. And it is sort of monkeyish, although I'm not actually, I've never seen monkeys f- really fight. So I don't know if they slap each other in that way. All in all, I think we will be further praising Ruth Wilson later in this episode, but uh, she remains great. And yep. this week, the, we're recording is the week that this truly terrible story came out about Ruth Wilson's unbelievably awful experience being just sexually harassed forever on her previous show, The Affair. So I will just hope that she has had a much better time filming this than she did having filming that. Yes, she is a great artist and she deserves better. All right, Laura, take our next letter. All right. So Maya writes, Dear experimental theologians, Dan and Laura, I'm absolutely loving this podcast, though curiously, I'm not, in fact, watching the TV show. This is this is fascinating. Um, part of me feels I already have the perfect version of his dark materials in the form of the novels, and I don't need the story told in any other way. Could you ask your alethiometer if I'm making a mistake? And did you have any similar concerns before the TV show, or did you always know you'd get engrossed in the series? Thank you for writing, Maya. This is really an interesting question. And this letter, which you actually sent a couple weeks ago, inspired our deep dive for this week's episode. Because, of course, I did have some concerns. and The concerns I had had mostly to do with the 2007 movie of The Golden Compass and how badly that movie botched things. So today we're going to explore that movie and what went wrong the last time someone tried to put his dark materials on screen. All right. The year is 2002. I hope you remember it. Uh, New Line has just blown away the movie world with the very first Lord of the Rings movie, an enormous, faithful adaptation of a beloved fantasy trilogy with incredible special effects. So fresh off that success, they buy the rights to His Dark Materials and start developing it as three movies, just like Lord of the Rings. When someone asks Toby Emmerich, the head of production at the time at New Line, why he bought these books, he replies, two words, Yorick Birneson. So the first screenplay for The Golden Compass comes from Tom Stoppard. I read this screenplay many, many years ago. I wrote about it uh, in Vulture, where, where I worked at the time that the movie came out. My notion for years had always been that this screenplay, this Tom Stoppard screenplay, was like a lost masterpiece. And if they had only shot that 
screenplay, the project would have been saved and the movie would have been an enormous success. Uh, but when I read the screenplay, I discovered I was probably wrong. The screenplay was enormous. It was about 178 pages. That's probably three and a half hours if you film it straight. It included almost every single plot point from the books and then also added scenes of bearded scholars just talking about experimental theology, if you can imagine. <laughs> uh, and and like uh, like this TV series, almost 20 years later, it introduced Will early and hinted at his importance to the greater story. It was okay. It was not particularly stopperty. It was Stoppard's best grasp at doing the most Philip Pullman screenplay he possibly could. In 2004, New Line scraps that Stoppard screenplay. They hire Chris Weitz to write and direct. So Weitz at this point was best known for American Pie uh, and for his Oscar-nominated screenplay for About a Boy, an extremely good movie with a great screenplay. Weitz convinces New Line to hire him with this passionate, now legendary 40-page memo where he just lays out everything he understands about the stories and uh, and the classical literature behind them. He um, went to Oxford or Cambridge, I can't remember which one, but he read English literature there uh, at university, even though he's American. Um, and he had all this background knowledge that really impressed them. So then Chris Weitz writes a screenplay. It's still about three hours long. It's 156 pages. This screenplay includes much of the book. But one thing it does right away is that it softens the impact of the magisterium of the church as the villain. Hannah Rosen, uh, Slate's beloved Hannah Rosen, reported at the time in a, in a feature in The Atlantic about this project, Weitz's early drafts included a scene with this alternative verse from, from Genesis, the one that uh, that Lord Azrael reads in this episode today. But he told Hannah that movie, a movie that included that alternate verse, was not going to get made. And so then over the next couple of years, the screenplay gets trimmed and trimmed and trimmed, and the spiky religious stuff gets sanded down and sanded down in exactly the way you'd expect it to when a big Hollywood studio starts thinking about the amount of money they have invested in this project. So let's start out our discussion of this movie by talking about what the magisterium is in the movie. Laura, how is the magisterium portrayed, and, and what was the response to the movie's religious themes or the lack thereof? Well, one thing that's important to keep in mind if if you've read the books but haven't seen the movie is that the magisterium is sometimes referred to as the church in the books or often referred to as the church, and that word is never used in the screenplay, which was something a lot of people commented, commented on at the time. Toby Emmerich once described the magisterium in talking about this movie as vaguely kind of like a fascist totalitarian dictatorship, Russian KGB SS combination. And he said dust was basically the force. The force. The, <laughs> the force, right? Um, so the magisterium of the film has like some religious trappings, like how, say, the character of Fra Pavel is dressed in a way that makes him look like he might work at the Vatican. But that's about it. It's got this logo that is like weirdly like, it's sort of Harry Potterish and also a little, but like the Warner Brothers Studios logo. <laughs> but that said, you know, there, there is not a lot of time in this movie for anybody to talk about you know, what the magisterium is or, or anything, you know? I mean, every second of this movie is, like, focused on moving the plot forward. And so um, you could almost not notice that whatever the magisterium was, just this vaguely authoritarian force. Um, w toning down the ideas of the book series for the film was 
nevertheless, just a completely no-win position for New Line, since everybody, you know, the books were already very popular in the UK and pretty popular here. And so Pullman's anti-theocratic message was well-known, and, and there, were, there were these, you know, there were a handful of believers writing in British papers, most notably um, Peter Hitchens, who is a Catholic, who complained about, and still complain, about Pullman. So in the U.S., the Catholic League denounced the film all the same. I mean, the the whole story, the books in the film are taken sort of more personally by Catholics, it seems, because the word magisterium is used in the Catholic Church for the authority of the Church. Um, and it's it's more centralized in the way that the Vatican is than most Protestant denominations. But anyway, the Catholic League, which is debatably just like one cookie guy named Bill Donahue, but nevertheless managed always to make a certain number of headlines, they denounced the film, and so did the Vatican newspaper. That's in spite of the changes made by the film, because their argument was that even without overt anti-religious messaging in the film, the film might encourage children to go read the books, and it's pretty obvious what Philip Pullman thought of religion when you read the books. So um, (laughs) they saw the film as just a big advertisement for the books, which they definitely didn't want people to read, especially young people. And meanwhile, everyone who loved the books for the sort of intellectual substance and the sort of big ideas was just enraged at the idea that the film version would dumb it down. So they really literally could not win with this strategy. It really seems like the cast and and crew of the movie and, and Chris White's took that that Vatican and Catholic League denouncing pretty personally. And Sam Elliott, who's in the movie, plays a really great Lee Scoresby. He has maintained an interview since then that the movie failed because of those protests, because of the controversy that it raised. But I don't really think that that's true. I think in the end, the movie failed because it's only two hours long. And so to the uninitiated non-reader, it just made no freaking sense at all. So um, remember the beginning of uh, the movie The Fellowship of the Ring, that scene where like Kate Blanchett is intoning the whole story up to now yeah. while all the actors you're going to see in the movie sort of whoosh around the screen? So New Line, having just made that movie and had a huge success with it, basically tried to do the same thing in The Golden Compass. They have Ava Green who plays Serafina Pecola in the movie. She opens the movie – intoning all this crap about dust and the ruling power. Here's what it sounds like. So many worlds, but connecting them all is dust. Dust was here before the witches of the air, the Egyptians of the water, and the bears of the ice. In my world, scholars invented an alithiometer, a golden compass and it showed them all that was hidden. But the ruling power, fearing any truth but their own, destroyed these devices and forbade the very mention of dust. All right, even so, even despite this prelude, the movie moves at such an insane clip, just trying to pack every single thing it can into two hours, that it basically makes no sense at all. It's like Mrs. Coulter walks into Jordan College and three minutes later, she and Lyra are off to London. And Lyra gets in a fight with Mrs. Coulter in London. And three minutes later, she's on a boat with Egyptians. 
Laura, in compressing this movie into this two-hour package, um, do you think there was any way that this thing could possibly have worked or was it was that always going to be a fatal flaw? I mean, conceivably, you could do it if you just didn't try to explain anything. You just put the world out there and let the audience – I mean, I don't think it would be any less confusing <laughs> for the audience than <laughs> to have anything, everything explained – but no, you know, I mean, the, the problem is, is there's this immense amount of world building. And what's tricky about the world building is that the world is sort of similar to our world. And yet there are these important differences. And so you don't have the, the sort of effect of, well, here's a completely alien place that you can just assume everything is strange. And yet at the same time, it's not totally familiar either. So it is just, it's in a bad place for a, a really compressed narrative. And the, the only way to do it was is just to go full arty on the, on the viewer and just go, we're just going to tell this story as if you already know all of this stuff and try to keep up. All right. Which of course they don't do. There's all these lines like, it's an alethiometer. A golden compass. Yeah. <laughs> and over and over again, you can feel them straining to like reach out to people and then making choices to completely just eliminate any discussion of any other, some other part of the world because it would just take too long and be too confusing, which maybe if they make that choice about everything, it works, or at least it works for very, for viewers who are like ready to dive into that world. In researching for this podcast, I looked back at the original Slate review of the movie, which Dana Stevens, still our film critic, wrote. And there's this amazing line because she had not read the books prior to going into this movie. Um, and she wrote, without at least a working knowledge of the dark material cosmos, this movie is a near impenetrable murk, a blur of CGI beasties, shimmering dust clouds, and vaguely mystical blather. And oh, it does have a lot of vaguely mystical blather, as uh, listeners heard, just in that you know forty second clip from the opening. Well, I would. I one thing I would like to point out with this problem is that every time the fan of an adapted property says, "Oh, it's missing this," or "I wanted to see this," or there is the sense that that because you love it, you need to see every single piece of it. And this is what happens when you approach a really complex story in a complex imagined world in this way, where you just, you have to get everything in. It becomes just this pell-mell hodgepodge of, of, of stuff that it's almost impossible to follow. And it doesn't even get everything in. It leaves so many good things out. Yeah. All right, well, let's talk about some stuff that really does work in the movie. To start with, both on an effects level and on an emotional level, this movie, it turns out, really nails the idea of demons. Absolutely. Lyra and Pan are always cuddling, depending on each other, whispering to each you other. You can really see how fun it is to have a demon when you're a kid and how demons are everywhere, part of everyday life. It's not like the TV series where crowd scenes leave a bunch of the demons out. A squadron of Tartar shows up, they've all got terrifying dog demons. Which, in turn, makes those fight scenes really great because the demons are out there fighting alongside everyone else. Yeah, and, and they evaporate beautifully when their humans get shot. It's a really cool effect. It's also, for all its flaws, got better and less clumsily expository dialogue than the series. Now, I'm not saying it has no clumsily expository <laughs> dialogue, as Dan pointed out, but it's a little less kind of on the nose. Um, 
It's it reaches for poetry a little more often in ways that I appreciate. Yes, and there's some sense of of, of of that you might be able to accomplish getting across what the viewer needs to know without completely spilling everything out. I mean, yeah. there's a scene in the series where Lyra and um, Yorick are about to go up to the the mountaintop where Lord Asriel is doing his fiendish experiment, and and Yorick goes, bears, come. And she says, you're calling the bears? And he says, I think I have a feeling we might need them. And you're just like, why is that dialogue <laughs> even there? <laughs> you know? Um, speaking of the bears, one thing I really like about the movie is the bears wear their armor when they're fighting like an armored bear should. It is a pretty <laughs> great fight scene. And I also think that the battle scene at Bolvanger is an excellent battle scene. Um, they've sort of rearranged the plot so that Eoric reclaiming the throne comes before the liberation of Bolvanger. So we get the battle as like the big cathartic climax of the story, whereas it, in, in the book, it's just part of like this kind of unspooling epic tapestry. And I also... Uh, one thing I really like about that scene with Yorick, and he's 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 they've given um, Yofer a different name. He's called like Ragnar or something like that. Ragnar Stern. They thought it'd be too confusing yeah. if there was a Yofer and a Yeah, their names are very, very similar. And that actually is a completely reasonable change. But it reproduces the scene that Dan read last time where Yorick just whacks off the entire lower jaw of his opponent. And then there's this cut to Lyra where she just has this look of like satisfaction on her face. And she, you know, and she, <laughs> unlike the Lyra in our series, she's not like kind of crouching and covering her eyes. Instead, she's she's just looking on with like, you know, approval Fuck and a yeah. kind of blood, almost bloodlust, like there's my king. As, which leads me to Dakota Blue Richards, who I had not really remembered being that memorable, but I do realize rewatching it that her Lyra has more of that kind of savagery that Pullman talked about. She's a she, despite being this kind of pre-Raphaelite, pretty, almost doll-like in appearance. She's very fierce and kind of a little urchiny, you know. Like she she emphasizes Lyra's um, gutter slang that she uses. Oh yeah, very much so. And she when she gets angry, she's, you know, you you think you, you do not want to make this girl mad. Like you you're just glad that she's a child and she can't really act on that. I too found her more satisfying this time around than I think I did the first time when I was comparing her only to an imagined Lyra in my head. And it's worth noting I do and I have ended up liking uh, Lyra in the TV series as well, who who delivers a very different kind of performance um, than this one. But yeah, Dakota Blue Richards is good, and she's one of a bunch of really good actors in this movie. I mean, at the time that this movie came out, it seemed like a real triumph of casting, right? That you had Daniel Craig playing Azriel, and you had uh, Nicole Kidman playing Mrs. Coulter. And then every other, every role in the movie is filled with just like an extremely accomplished actor, just like acting their fucking head off. I, I just, I'm going to have to jump in and say that I think Nicole Kidman is terrible in this movie. <laughs> but it seemed good before we saw it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. She's, I mean, she's the right type. Right. But, you know, she's, it, it seems that her face has been sort of Botoxed into, 
immobility and she's got makeup troweled all over it. I mean, she seems not quite human in this role. And part of it is her, some of her outfits are really over the top, but, um, yeah, no. Her outfits are, she are did what not work for me. Made me think that this movie could have in another world with maybe like like 10 more ounces of cheese become a kind of camp classic. Uh, yeah. and it's a shame yeah. that maybe they didn't lean into that more if it wasn't going to work anyway. <laughs> um one small role that I really liked a lot was uh Tom Courtenay as Farter Corum. Yeah. He is great. He is just lovely and sweet, also a very different Farter Corum than the one in the, this TV series but extremely convincing as a guy who 40 years ago was unbelievably handsome and a witch fell for him because he's still Tom Courtenay. So he still looks pretty great. And then, of course, there is the movie's biggest choice. And this is the one that drove fans sort of most insane, fans of the book most insane, the happy ending. The movie ends with the kids freed from Bullvanger and York made a king and then Lyra headed off with Lee to see her father and then just credits. There's none of that stuff that's in this week's episode. In the movie, there's no betrayal. There's no sacrifice. There's, in fact, no opening of the door to other worlds. There's no payoff to this idea of other worlds. Why did they do this? And what, I mean, what could they possibly have been thinking? Well, I mean, Pullman himself said, um, and I quote, they needed an ending that would work for a single film, but one that would also work if it was the first of a trilogy. They wanted both a cliffhanger and a resolution, and you just can't do that. And also, I have to say, the a resolution is just so much less exhilarating than that cliff. I mean, that is one hell of a cliffhanger where you have your character walking off into another universe. To face God knows what. Right. And uh, I mean, the the decision speaks to the sort of cautious way that New Line ended up approaching this material after being totally gung-ho for it when they bought it in 2002, right? They, at some point in this process, their opinion of these books clearly changed from they are the perfect thing to treat exactly as we treated Lord of the Rings, uh, which is to say a series we had absolute faith in, produced at extravagant cost and length. And shot all at once, made a three-movie commitment, and declared from the beginning, we're doing this whole thing no matter what. At some point in this process, His Dark Materials transformed from that kind of property into a property where they felt like, we're a little bit nervous about how this will play. We don't really understand how to handle the villain in this without angering people, uh, without angering churchgoers who we think we need to love this movie. And we're not going to commit to three movies. We're going to make this first one, and then we'll see. We'll see what happens. And Chris Weitz spoke a lot, I mean, at the time that the movie came out, about making tons of concessions to New Line in order to try and get the next two movies made. Philip Pullman talked about that in that interview with Hannah Rosen in The Atlantic. He starts talking shit about, about like what the movie could have been if they just embraced the magisterium as the villain. And then all of a sudden he just stops himself and he goes, uh, all right, I'm, I'm saying too much. I don't want to say anything else because I want these next two movies to get made. So let's just leave it at that. Yeah, it's worth it's worth remembering that at the time there was an evangelical in the White House and there was a kind of let's all pull together after 9-11 and for this war. And there was a, a sense of the sort of cultural power of evangelicals that 
they still are powerful in many ways, but that that there was a way that the mainstream, like you had to attend to them in some way, that is not really so much the case now. So they made all these concessions. They made all these cuts. They dumbed it down. Uh, and in the end, it didn't work. The movie completely bombed in the U.S. They spent $180 million bucks on it. It made $70 million in the United States. Um, it actually, it turned out, did great overseas. This was a story that didn't get told much at the time because it had been so lodged in the American consciousness as a flop. It, it hugely outperformed expectations overseas. But New Line didn't see any of that money because it had given away all overseas rights in order to raise that $180 million budget. So the movie comes out, it bombs, New Line loses an enormous amount of money in it. Almost immediately after the movie bombs, we hit the Great Recession. And in early 2008, New Line is shut down. Shut down as an independent studio, merged with its corporate owner, Warner Brothers. This is a move blamed in large part in coverage at the time on the failure of the Golden Compass. And, you know, at that point, everyone knew we were never going to see a movie of The Subtle Knife. We were never going to see a movie of of The Amber Spyglass. And I remember at the time, even though I didn't like this movie, being crushed, crushed by that news, which sort of brings us around to this original mailbag question that uh, we fielded from Maya. The question is, why, when we really, really love a book, are we so eager to see it on a screen? For, are we, why are we so eager for someone to make it into a movie or a TV show or something? You know, I thought the Golden Compass movie was bad, but I still mourned those movies that I didn't get to see. And then 12 years later, I was excited, hugely excited about this series, despite my previous experience being disappointed by an adaptation of these books. Why is that? What drives that impulse? I don't know. I don't think I have that to the extent that a lot of other people do. I'm not the kind of person who, if I have a favorite book, I want to sit around casting it in my head with the movie stars of the time. But I do think that the thing about these books is that the storytelling is so extraordinary. It seems like it would lend itself really well to the movies. And also that, you know, I can remember when my friend who was a movie critic came back from the first Lord of the Rings film, The Fellowship of the Rings, and both of us had been big readers of Tolkien as uh, in our youth, and and that those books had a special place in our hearts. And when he came to me and said, it's really good, I was like, wow, you're kidding, because it just didn't seem possible. And so, um, you know, part of it, I think, with this movie, I remember being very excited about it as well, but part of it was just the hope that it can, you know, bring that world that you've been sort of immersed in imaginatively to life in a new, fuller way than you get from reading it, even though reading it is obviously completely sufficient. Um, I don't think it's true with all of my favorite books that I want to, you know, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro is one of my favorite books, but I have never seen the film film adaptation and never will. It does seem like there's something about these, the particular kind of narrative that it's not only that you love it, but that you want to live in it, right? Like something like a Harry Potter or His Dark Materials where you're like, oh, to step into that world just once, I would give anything to have that experience. And I wonder if the hunger to see it on a screen is in part 
trying to fulfill that hopeless wish, right? You can't really go to Hogwarts, but if it's, if someone managed to bring it to life vividly on a screen, you could be immersed in it for a couple of hours. And that would be just a little bit of that magic you really want. And I guess in light of that, in light of that wish, and in light of both of our enthusiasm for this series before HBO started airing it now eight weeks ago, what do you think overall? Has it been satisfying watching the season despite the things that we both acknowledge are frustrating or, or bad about the show? Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I got from this was a was a better understanding of the characters, a better appreciation of the characters. I think the strength of this series is that you can feel that the focus of the creators is on the characters and their relationships to each other and what they are feeling in a way that could easily have been dissipated by just getting into the whole world-building situation. And so we have not just great performances by people like Ruth Wilson and James McAvoy and Daphne Keene, but we have directors who who recognize that that giving time to that performance over the plot, or not over the plot, but in addition to the plot, is really important. So that in this final episode, which I have to say, I thought that the whole last sequence was beautifully shot. The um, airships coming up over the mountains with the lights was spectacular. The scene where the bridge between the two universes was beautiful and at the same time um, terrifying. You know, the moment where it comes down is just enough, but not too much. And then when Lyra is holding Roger in silhouette against this glowing bridge was just a beautiful piece of visual storytelling. Like this beautiful thing has been made at the price of this terrible loss. Um, but one scene that we didn't mention, we talked about these conversations between um, Asriel and and Lyra, but I I loved the scene where Roger and Lyra are in the little tent and they're just being kids and they're little in their little tent and they have that moment where he says, I'm glad you changed my life. And I I have to admit that while I pitied Roger in the books, and I knew that you know, he had been treated badly. I did not feel it the way I did in this series because of the time given and the performances given to make that character seem real. And the sense that Lyra has been chasing her father and chased by her mother. There are these blood family relations, but Roger is really the closest thing she has to a family, and she really loves him. And that was just really well fleshed out in that little scene. And those are the moments that I really like about this series. Yeah, I agree. And and I don't think it's wrong to say that the directors, that many of the directors on the show, as well as Jack Thorne, have made the decision to focus on those moments, sometimes at the expense of the plot, or at least sometimes at the expense of some kinds of world building that you, they could have been doing otherwise. And so my great disappointments with the show, to some extent, revolve around the things I sort of most childishly but passionately want out of the show, which is to live in that world. The things that I appreciate it the most 
about it the most are the things that are about actual narrative storytelling, getting from point A to point B, developing and growing characters, filming really good scenes between characters, uh, and letting those characters, those actors bounce off each other in interesting ways. Like that stuff is much better than I probably really expected it to be and better in a way than a series like this often gets. And so I guess maybe my answer to Maya's question is if you feel you've already experienced the perfect version of his dark materials and you don't feel any hunger at all to see it, well then don't, don't watch it. Save yourself the time. If when you think of the idea of experiencing his dark materials, again, what you want out of it the most is to, is to dive in deep with those characters to learn, as Laura says, more about them, to get a better sense of them as human beings, then yes, also watch, then watch the show like that. It delivers that. If what you want is to feel like, to know what it's like to have a demon, to feel what it's like to have a demon as Laura and I get to every day, uh, then don't, then probably don't because it's not going to deliver that to you. All right, let's talk about the scene between the show's two showcase actors, James McAvoy and Ruth Wilson, standing before the door to another world. Mrs. Coulter and Lord Azrael kiss as their demons passionately embrace. This made me a little uncomfortable. You don't usually see demons making out on the TV. Azrael urges Mrs. Coulter to come with him to join his war against the authority. Mrs. Coulter demurs because, she says, our child is in this world. Our place is with her. Really? That... Did you buy that for Mrs. Coulter? Um, well, what I really like about this characterization is uh, is the incredible conflicts that are going on within this character, which we, uh, you know, only occasionally see because so much of her personality is about maintaining this completely unflappable facade. Right, to maintain her position so often that's required. Yes, Yeah. yes. And there is this way, you know, in the book, her decision not to go with him is partly uh, like a failure of nerve and partly not wanting to give up the power that she's already acquired in the magisterium. And she doesn't say um, our place is with her. She says my place is with her. At least that's how I remember it. And for me, what makes this character sort of fascinating is that she is actually secretly backfooted, you know, by her maternal feelings. I, you know, my feeling is that when she went to Oxford to get Lyra, she was sort of in control of her stuff, all of her assorted stuff and her schemes, and that she was just poleaxed by how strong her feelings were for this child. And she's changing her plans along the way because she didn't anticipate that. And she's constantly, you know, coping with that and not tipping, trying not to tip people off. And this is like a really very difficult position for her to be in because her whole thing is projecting this this confidence that there's this scene with Father uh, McPhail where she says, you envy Azrael and I, you know, the confidence with which we move through the world. I mean, that is like a big source of her power. And this whole, this thing with Lyra is nibbling away at that in a way. Yeah, she's dancing as fast as she can, and she never expected exactly. to be in that position. It brings to mind this conversation we had a couple episodes ago 
um, about whether this book series is truly for children or truly for adults. And one great thing that this TV series has done is it's taken these children's book characters, Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel, and turned them into living, breathing adult characters um, through pretty good writing, through very good performances. That's a choice that they made, and it's a choice, I think, that pays off in this scene between Asriel and Mrs. Coulter. So Asriel goes through the door. Mrs. Coulter leaves, makes a perfunctory attempt to find Lyra. Uh, The season ends with Lyra and Pan walking through the door and Will, in our world, stepping through another door to where? Now, in the in the books, Will is uh, walking near the Oxford Ring Road on Sunderland Avenue, famously, when he suddenly sees right by a row of hornbeam trees in the median, a window to a different world, and he enters the world there. He sees a cat go through. Oh, right, just, right, right, yeah. And then he follows, yeah. And they use the cat in the series, but it's more hidden in this weird um, space which I don't know if it actually belongs to Lord Boreal. It's just this sort of walled garden space that he ends up in when he goes through that ruined greenhouse. In yeah, that he Lyra's seems to world. have found. Yeah, yeah, he's found it. He's, uh, you know, when you see Will there, you think, oh, that's where Boreal parks his car. <laughs> <You know? laughs> At first, I was like, and then I was like, oh yeah, but he parks his car there because he comes out in the bushes. You know, like, you know some kind of a cat burglar and uh, that's just where the the greenhouse portal or window i believe they're called windows in this series where where that leaves him is in this funny little space incidentally that's according to lin-manuel miranda that's the exact block that his apartment was on when he was shooting his dark materials and he had no idea that they were shooting these other scenes there <laughs> so then he freaked out when he saw it on screen but so those hornbeam trees on Sunderland Avenue have a very specific meaning to Pullman, right? And other real places in Oxford do as well. Yeah. I mean, throughout the books, he incorporates real places in Oxford, a, a, a city that he deeply loves. Those hornbeam trees are on Sunderland Avenue. And he, in addition, he has Jericho, where the Egyptians moor their boats and the covered market, and then most famously of all, uh, a bench in the Botanic Gardens, um, which comes into the story much later. Uh, There's a bunch of benches there. There's maybe three or four of them. And I went there with him and he wouldn't tell me which was which bench it was. He said (laughs) he said he never tells anyone. He 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 would rather they just pick the one that that they most uh you know, fits, suits their imagination the best. But, um, but yeah, he, you know, and, and fans of the books go to those places and take photos. And we don't see those hornbeam trees in this TV show, which is fine. They're not necessarily crucial to the story. But what is crucial in the books is that Will doesn't, isn't going to Lyra's world necessarily. He's going somewhere else. But given that he's here in the in Lord Boreal's garden, or at least the garden that houses Lord Boreal's window, does this mean that Will is coming to Lyra's world just as Lyra is leaving for the potentially the world of the city in the sky? Well, let's hope 
that yeah. he's not coming out in the Arctic because he does not have the clothes for it. That's true. He is not dressed at all for that. Uh, I don't know if his boxing training will keep him alive very long. We will find out where Will comes out, where Lyra comes out, and if they will meet and when they will meet in season two of His Dark Materials, which the BBC has already filmed and which will appear on your TV screens, I expect, next fall, although no official date announcement has been made. And we'll be back then, too, to dive into The Subtle Knife, the fantastic second book in Philip Pullman's trilogy. We cannot wait to talk to you then. Our producer is Phil Circus, Engineering assistance from Melissa Kaplan and Asha Saluja. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. On Twitter, I'm at Dan Kois, and Laura is at Magician's Book, or you can drop us a line at asktheauthority at slate.com. I'm Dan Kois. I'm Gilda. I'm Laura Miller. And I'm Saki. And remember, without stories, we wouldn't be human beings at all. See you in season two. <laughs>